You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions, and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is civic entrepreneur and filmmaker, Sam Katz. Sam's the co-founder and executive producer of History Making Productions, which has produced over 200 films and videos ranging from the 13-part series, Philadelphia, The Great Experiment, to the film Beethoven in Beijing on China and the future of classical music, and frankly, everything in between from uh, films on architecture, baseball, and civil rights to philanthropy, religion, and science. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thanks for having me, Laura. It's a pleasure. Now, tell us a little bit about History Making Productions. What's your 30-second elevator pitch? We're trying to take our portfolio of Philadelphia films nationally. And to do that, I'm going to have to raise a boatload of money to change the license agreements that I have for all the archival material, over 4,500 pieces, to assure that it has a long-term life that can be distributed nationally. And so right now, if your company is interested in sponsoring and connecting and wrapping their brand into the history of Philadelphia, I have a great opportunity for you. All right. And we'll find out how to get in touch at the end of the show. So be sure you stick around. Now, Sam, what's your favorite part of your job and why after 200 films and more, you apparently like something about it. So what's the best part? The best part of my work is working with creative people working with people with great ideas, with great creative and technical skills who are intellectually gifted or who are creatively gifted and collaborating because collaboration is critical to filmmaking. I wish I understood better how important it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago, but certainly in order to make documentaries or even uh, certainly feature films and documentaries, you have to work with a lot of people who have a lot of talent and to be talented also means to have your own opinions. So The collaboration isn't just about the creative, it's also managing the differences of opinions and points of view. And I would have to say that's probably been the most challenging, but the most rewarding thing that I do. The creative tensions that create the best products in the end. You have to deal with egos. Everybody has them. I have one and everybody I deal with has one. And, you know, I'm a lot older than a lot of the people I work with, many of whom are the age of my children. Yeah. And it's uh, sometimes a little bit difficult not to remember that they're not my children. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, sure. And I'm sure that goes both ways in in a lot of ways. So that's important to recognize in generational communications as well as interdisciplinary and inter-everything else. Now, you specialize in documentary video. So what's your objective? Why documentaries? What's your objective in creating them? So coming out of my political career, which was not hugely successful, but which pushed me into a very public place. And you had run for mayor of Philadelphia as well as for governor of Pennsylvania. I ran for mayor three times, the last time in 2003 and governor in 1994. And being that public and also taking the incomings that go along with politics, which are far worse today, far Mm. worse today than they were 20 years ago. I wanted to do something very different. And I really thought that I knew a lot about Philadelphia. I represented the people 
that I knew a lot about sure. Philadelphia. And what I discovered when I lost the fourth time, my disappointment was so overwhelming that I could only conclude one thing, that I knew nothing about Philadelphia, that I knew nothing about the people of Philadelphia. Because if I had known anything about them, I either wouldn't have run or they would have elected me. <laughs> so I would say that my number one goal initially was to educate Philadelphians about our past, our collective past, on the belief that it's very hard to know where you're going if you have no idea where you've been. And I think for a lot of Philadelphians, they feel very prideful in their history, which they deserve to feel, whether it's the church history, the neighborhood history, what's upstairs in the attic or the Liberty Bell, mm. but very much to an extent that I think is not in the city's interest and in the people's interests. Too much of that focus is on 1776, yes. which was a very important time for our nation and an important time for the city, but there were many, many other times of greater importance to Philadelphia. So the second thing I wanted to do was to inspire people. You want to educate people, you want to inspire them. And to do both of those things, you have to entertain them. Yes. And so telling the story of Philadelphia through documentary film engages me in educating, inspiring, and entertaining. And in order to do that, in order to acquire a large audience, which we have for our work, those are the critical components. I think a lot of people misunderstand and underestimate and inevitably undervalue the importance of finding that balance between informing and entertaining. And a lot of people feel like, if I have important information to share, I shouldn't have to entertain people to get them to pay attention. Well, you shouldn't have to, perhaps, but that's the world we're in. There are way too many other more interesting things out there that are constantly vying for people's attention. Eight billion channels, every movie known to man between Netflix and Prime and whatever other platforms are coming out. And everybody carries the world with them in the palm of their hands nowadays. So yeah, we sort of do need to work a little bit harder to captivate people, not just hold them captive as audiences. I think most people feel like they're captives more often than not. They want to leave and they can't. So to be able to find that balance of just being interesting enough, and that may feel like a real burden to some people, speakers, leaders, politicians, business, et cetera, feeling like, but I don't know how to be captivating as a speaker. Well, time to uh, pay attention to Sam Katz now and learn some skills on this because it is just a, a necessary component of the leadership skill set, I think, in today's world. So with that, then what big project are you working on now? And how do you have to adjust your pitch when talking to different key stakeholder groups about it at different stages? Well, can I go back and take the first part of your comment and say sure, that please. The, the most important thing in communicating, I, I don't mean in uh, interpersonal communications, Order cooler communications sure. or even social media communications, but in real human interactive communications, is to know who you're talking to or who you want to be talking to. In my case, I want to be talking to as large an audience of Philadelphians and in particular to the Philadelphia history. Mm -hmm. But in an office situation, I'm talking to somebody that I want to try to persuade. And so what is my message? What do I think will persuade? And do I believe that what I am messaging is in fact something of integrity, that there's something sure. important to be done. So who am I talking to and what is my message? Once you really think that through, and I would say that's probably worth a lot of time, then crafting how you deliver the message is very audience or person-centric, and it's very much focused on what you're trying to say. 
So how you use humor, how you make it personal, how you anecdote it in your own life's experience, or how you project it as something that will be good for the common interest of the company, the organization, the family. All of those things, I think, go into excellent interactions with people. And it isn't essential that you be dynamic or that you be charismatic, although both of those things can be helpful. But if you feel you're not, you want to push the envelope a little bit on those two points, because what other people will react to isn't just the message, and it isn't just the messenger, it's how the message is delivered. Yes. But the delivery has to be true to the messenger. So I have, yes. that's a little complicated. That's exactly what is the premise for those out there who've read my book or seen my TED Talk. It's all about the alignment, the verbal, the vocal, and the visual, the content and the delivery. It's when those are in alignment with each other, that's when a message is compelling. But when there's that gap, that's exactly where the message falls through the cracks. So I'm so glad to hear you reinforce that. And, you know, the perfect example, I think words like charisma and dynamic are words that people get very nervous about because they have certain connotations like Tony Robbins or the televangelists or somebody who's a little over the top and larger than life. And it doesn't have to be. It's just we need to make sure it's not as binary polls where you're either like that over the top or to reference a very non-documentary movie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the Ben Stein's original character of basically the worst economics teacher on the planet who just talked in a monotone and put all of his students to sleep. And everybody laughed at that movie. But the fact is, as we get older, we're talking and there's an awful lot of people who have turned into that. They would deny it, but to watch them or to ask most other people, that's kind of where they are. So somewhere in between is that grayscale that we want to strive to, to your point, and step out of that box a little bit, push the envelope. So there's the challenge. So the thing about fear, which I think accompanies us in a lot of our experiences in life, is that they have a chemical impact on us. Yes. And one of the worst outcomes of that impact is being monotonic, mm. to speak in a monotone. So when I use the word charisma, I think the most important thing is inflection. Yes. I want my voice to go up and I want my voice to come down. Yes. I want to be happy and I want to be scared. So all of those things, we don't need to practice them when we're talking to people we're comfortable with. Right. But when we're in an uncomfortable situation and we're concerned about our dynamism or our charisma, inflection and eye contact, yes. eye contact. Yes. When my children were bar and bat mitzvah and they had to give a what's called a Devar Torah, which is essentially a little speech. And it's all bar mitzvah kids sound and bat mitzvah kids sound the same, uh, thanking this person and that person. And I told them they were only going to go down this path once in life. And they should look at every single person in the congregation because from those people, from those eyes, from those smiles, from those reactions, they will get confident and feel good about what they're doing. And all of them came through that horrible and frightening experience, the feeling the same way. They remember it vividly. So I think eye contact. If you're only with one person, you don't want to stare at them, but you don't right. want to lose contact with their eye. You don't want you, you don't want to be doing this or, or this. Right. Looking down. You don't want to be looking at your watch <laughs> the date. Right. So or don't uh, get caught then, looking at your watch at least. Yes. And the and the other thing is to be a good listener. You know, you don't always have to be moving your lips to be effective. And sometimes the most effective way to interact with people is to listen to what they have to say. So I think there's a lot that you can do to be charismatic and dynamic without being a candidate for a late night television show. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for clarifying with this. So let's go back to the question about your 
your current project. You're working on a project about a movie about Detroit. Tell us a little bit about that. My career has been a very diverse one, and I have gone through many phases. In fact, I probably am in my fourth or fifth career track. I was appointed by Governor Corbett in 2011 to chair the board that was created when I first ran for mayor in the city's fiscal crisis called PICA, the Pennsylvania Intergovernmental Cooperation Authority, a bizarre name. (laughs) Uh, And its job was to monitor the city of Philadelphia's finances, a job that will end, by the way, in 2023, statutorily. And during my tenure, I read in the papers that the city of Detroit was going to go into bankruptcy or was headed into bankruptcy. And having spent this career, I thought reasons that I could not any longer explain that it would be a really fascinating story. And would it be a fascinating film? Well, I didn't know enough to say that, but I thought it might be. And so for three or four years, I followed Detroit in the press until I had a clearing some of my agenda, some of the projects we've been producing. And I decided to traipse out to Detroit and spend a week. And in the course of meeting maybe 25 or 30 people who had been involved in the bankruptcy, I came home with an idea that it could be a great story. How hard a story it was going to be to tell in a way that would attract general audiences, not every type of audience, but at least not just bond lawyers and bankruptcy attorneys, turned out to be the most challenging thing. And Mm. We were recently recognized in a way that I think will give the film great launch, great lift, as the winner of the 2021 Library of Congress Levine Ken Burns Prize for Film. Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. That film, gradually then suddenly, The Bankruptcy of Detroit, will be released sometime in 2022. And I intend to do some private screenings around the country and also here in Philadelphia so people can see it because what it is is a very powerful message, which is for municipal and state governments, if you kick the fiscal can down the road, this is what it looks like when you run out of road, and it is not pretty. And if you don't want to go into this situation because of pension liabilities or excessive debt or a declining tax base or deindustrialization or race or any of the other poverty, all the things that plague cities, we're going to have to figure this out because The bankruptcy of Detroit was only successful in getting out of bankruptcy because they owned their own art museum. And when the foundation world wanted to save the museum and save the retiree pensions, they came to the table with like $380 million matched by the state and the city found a way out. But if you don't own your own art museum, you're up the creek without a paddle. Right. And so this is a bit of the canary in the coal mine. It's a very entertaining film. It's very balanced in perspective. And it doesn't try to take a position. It just says, here's the story. Yes. And so a little spoiler alert to everybody out there. Sam was generous enough to send a link. So I was able to preview this movie and it was incredible. And I have to confess, history was never my subject in school. And I've never been to Detroit, didn't know anything about it. But I thought, okay, let me take a look at this. Such great storytelling. And, you know, I'm really glad you mentioned that last piece because A question that I would love to get to next is looking at that issue of, do you have an agenda? What's your objective? Do you take sides? And I really was listening and you had representatives in this movie from both sides of, and many, probably wasn't even a matter of two sides, but from multiple, just, (laughs) yeah, many different stakeholder groups who are saying that if we go bankrupt, what will that do to the city? Do we need to go bankrupt and file 
Otherwise, we're in bigger trouble. And you really did a great job of making it hard to tell which side you were on, so to speak. And I think that is really impressive because everybody's got an agenda of some sort. You have your mission, your purpose in sharing this. But to be able to stay that surface neutral shall we say, and let the audience come up with their own decisions, regardless, you know, they don't get to pick the ending, the ending happened the way it happened. But that was really impressive. And I'm curious as to what you see as the line, if there is indeed one between having your objective and making it, but still staying objective, per se, and not letting your objective become an agenda. So other filmmakers like Michael Moore, for example, are unabashed in their political angles, and they make films to promote their viewpoints for better, for worse, take your side as you like. But this was a very different kind of film. So what do you think is that line? Where do you draw it? First of all, I think it's a really good question and it's not an easy one to answer. The idea that you take a position is not uncommon among documentary filmmakers. It is more common, I think, for documentary filmmakers who feel passionate about a subject that they would put themselves and use the documentary as a means to convey that point of view. Having come out of a political life and a very competitive business world, I felt that I had already had an opportunity to express my point of view about things. And I like to say that the public decided that was not their point of view. However, I was under a lot of suspicion as Mm. a former Republican candidate for mayor of Philadelphia in the intellectual community, in the university academic community, as someone who was sort of politically foreign to them. And so I knew from the get-go that part of my challenge was to overcome my public profile as a politician who had expressed his point of view about Mm -hmm. almost everything, often to my own regret, to be a person who was going to be an objective researcher and analyzer of the stories and facts and make sure that to the best of our ability, and that's limited, we didn't leave out other people's points of view. And I think in Detroit, I subscribed at the outset to a view that this was a great thing, that there were heroes, the pensioners, the the judges. When you say uh, this was a great thing, you mean bankruptcy, filing for bankruptcy. was Going into bankruptcy and coming out of it whole and having a future for the city was a great thing. And the way it was done was extraordinary. And I think there's a real strong case to be made in that point of view but not for the people who came out as losers sure, who expressed an entirely different view. And I say losers in the sense of how assets were deployed or cuts were made or pensioners, people who had worked for the city of Detroit for 25, 30, 35 years, saw if they were not police or firefighters, saw a 4% cut in their pensions, had their cost of living adjustments halved and lost their health care. And you're now 70 years old. You're not feeling it was such a great thing. Yeah. And then there were members of the state legislature who voted no on state funding, who didn't think it was such a great thing. And there were bond creditors, people who had lent the city money in good faith, who got royally hacked in terms of the haircuts that they took, who didn't think it was such a good thing. And so it's from their perspective, in each case, how good or bad it was. So let's hear from everybody. So you, the audience, can decide what you think. Mm. And my bet is that most people will get to the end of this film and get to the same place that we did, which is maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Yeah. Now, with all the different stakeholder groups that are involved in making a documentary, how do you have to adapt your message 
to address each of those in that differentiation? Well, you know, to make any kind of a big project like we do needs a lot of money. So philanthropy is the key to finding money. I have to get people, foundations, high net worth people, family offices, and small donors to be willing to donate to the cause. And the cause is to educate, inspire, and entertain, in my case, Philadelphians for the most part, and now in the case of Detroit, the country. So stakeholders who are funders can't think that they're making the film. This is not a process by committee. The foundations in Detroit who save the art museum and the pensions are all the major funders of the film. Hmm. But I made very clear to them that they would not have any influence over the editorial direction of the film. They made very clear to me that the film had to be available in southeastern Michigan in and around Detroit at no cost to the people of Detroit. So it was a pretty fair trade-off. Then there are the people who own the intellectual property, the authors, the journalists, the lawyers, the citizens, activists, people who have their own stories to tell. And it's really critical as an interviewer, as you know, you're very good at it, that you are listening to what people are saying. So your follow-up questions aren't coming off your clipboard. Right. They're coming out of your head. That's being the good listener. Now, with all of those different groups that you've had to engage, in particular with the documentary work, who are some of the toughest people to get on board, the, the toughest conversions, persuasions to get to that yes? And what did you have to do to finally get them on board? Well, I think in the case of Philadelphia, the biggest hurdle to overcome was the one I mentioned earlier, which was this change of life. Like, what's he doing? Mm. Wait a second. Isn't that that guy who ran for mayor? Right. <laughs> Now he wants to make movies, right? What? What? It's a branding challenge. What? What is that? And th that was probably true of funders, but it was more true of historians mm. who you're going to do what? And you're qualified to do that. Why? Right. So let's take a little shift here. And I'd love to give you the opportunity to talk directly to our audience and give them the listener 24-hour influence challenge. This is an opportunity to challenge everyone out there to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. What's a quick step that you'd like them to take? It's a very simple step, and it is to express gratitude. Hmm. To find the people who you live with, are neighbors to, work with, rely on, communicate with, and appreciate them. Whether it's the person who works in the lobby of your building when you walk in, who you usually ignore or the person who comes around at the end of the day to clean your office, or that person down the hall who you really can't stand, but you find a way to say something to them that says how grateful you are. That will pay dividends. If you do that tomorrow and every day thereafter, I think you will find yourself much more successful in life. I love it. All right. Well, that brings us then to the speed round. And we've got a last couple of quick questions here for you. You have clearly many, many skills, Sam. So what is one communication-related skill that you are very good at? And what's one that you're still working on or just wish you were better at? Well, the one I would like to be better at is to be more diplomatically honest mm. as opposed to just brutally honest. Okay. I do suffer fools easily, but only after I've expressed my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I could be more diplomatic, you know, and I am diplomatic for the most part, except when I'm not. As far as things I do well, I have to say, I think taking time to think about things makes me a better communicator because I have some thought about what it is I'd like to say. 
I'm confident in my communication skills. I was a lousy communicator my first campaign. Mm -hmm. I had 45 three by five cards in my left pocket all the time, ready to answer any question with a detailed 10 point plan. (laughs) And at some point, Connie said to me, put the cards away and talk from your heart. And once I did that with a reasonably cogent brain, not a great brain, but a good enough brain and all the public speaking you do as a candidate, I mean, it's 10 times a day at night, you're interviewing, everything you do is being watched. So you do learn how to bring some discipline so you you don't wander out of your lane too much. But I think I've gotten to that point where I'm pretty much in my lane. What's the best piece of advice anyone ever gave you about business leadership, storytelling, whatever you like? The best piece of advice I ever got was from a professor of mine who in graduate school in urban policy analysis told all of us, not just me, if you spend 80% of your time figuring out what the problem is, truly understanding the nature of the problem and the dynamics and pressures around the problem, the 20% of your time left to solve the problem will be spent at least solving the right problem. Mm. And that's the best advice I ever got. So I take my time now. I didn't always, I didn't listen. I didn't truly understand that when I was in my 30s. And I was in a very competitive kind of business. I mean, it was brutally competitive. Mm. And so I did a lot of knee-jerk reacting. But when I got the, the assignment and we were trying to solve a technical problem, a financial problem, or an engineering problem for a municipal infrastructure project, I learned how to apply that advice. I think that's the 80-20 rule on a slightly different twist to it. Make sure you're spending 80% of your time focusing on identifying the right problem in the first place. So this is a unique opportunity for me to be able to ask because we talk all the time, meaning my audience and I, my clients, about virtual influence because now we're all here on screen almost 8, 10, 12 hours a day, sometimes even more. And when you're not here on Zoom, Teams, or whatever other platform your organization uses, everybody's walking around with a camera in their hand, connected to their phone, etc. So we've all become filmmakers in one sense or another. So this is an opportunity to get advice from a real pro. Can you give one piece of advice? We'll do more than one if you'd like, but otherwise one piece of advice just to help everybody out there just be a little bit better with the camera. You get up in the morning and you go to your office. Do you worry about how you look? Do you brush your hair? Do you make sure your tie is on right? Is your blouse correct? Is the skirt length appropriate? Are you wearing the right shoes? You're doing all that when you go to the office, but you're not thinking about that when you're on virtual. Mm. And obviously don't worry about your shoes or your pants too much. But So that's number one. Number two is the eye contact. I have not taken my eye off this camera. You're right above me, or you could be over here on the screen, but I'm talking to you. And so for everybody who's looking at you and they see your eye contact, your eye contact is with them, not over here looking at you talking like this. Yes. Um, Number three, I think, is you, you do need to present yourself. So look at the camera once before you get on and make sure that you don't have a poster behind you that's going to embarrass you or... right. If you have a virtual screen, learn how to use it because if you don't know how to use it, you become fuzzy and you break up and people look at that. It's like distracting. Yes. Put your mute button on when you shouldn't be talking. So you're not being heard. (laughs) Be conscious of the technology and be conscious of the brand that you want to project. 
Yes. And I don't mean that in the corporate sense, but just in the personal Personal branding. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for reinforcing that because I keep telling everybody this is a branding issue. It's not a tech issue. The way you come across on camera is your brand and it's both your individual brand as a person, as a contributor and the brand of the organization that you are supposed to be representing. It's it's reflecting on both of them. So I'm so glad to hear you. You're doing a lot of this. You want to have good technology too. You want to have a good camera and you want to have a good microphone and you want to make sure that you're lit well. I have a big window here. So I, it's hard to light and except at night, but I do a lot of presentations and a lot of talks and a lot of things in which I am in a post-screening situation with a Q and A. So I'm going to make sure I have been properly lit and that I'm looking like the guy who's just made a movie and not some schlep that just walked into the room and sat down with a beer. Yeah. Yes, the beer can come afterwards, no problem, once cameras are off, and everybody will have earned them well, but be mindful of being on the camera at that point. Now, you mentioned a little while ago working with students and looking at the future, different generations. This is our opportunity. My last question to you today is some advice to the future generation. And I know you've actually been asked to do this in reality and more than once for that matter. So if you were asked to give the commencement address at a high school graduation ceremony one more time, what advice would you give the graduates, whether or not they go to college, regardless of major career goals? What's the one thing they have to do to be successful in life? The number one problem that I think confronts the mental health of America and probably of the world, but mostly America, is ambition. And ambition and aspiration or fear of ambition, fear of aspiration, really impact the way people think about themselves and how they're going to take the next step. And my advice to people is to never confuse your net worth with your self-worth. So I always tell people, don't worry about a career. A career isn't something you're going to have. It's something you had. It's something you look back on. And you want to be thinking about who was that person who did all those things. I mean, I have a hard time connecting to the guy who ran for mayor three times. The things that I had to do and put up with and go through and the fear and knowledge at some point that I was going to lose. And I still had to get out of bed every day and do what I was doing, but I knew I was going to lose for governor. And I knew I was going to lose for mayor the first time, but I should have won. But you just have to be looking at who you are as being more important than how much you own and how much you earn. And while those are important things to own and earn, they're not the most important things. And there's a point in life when you can hardly use them (laughs) and they're just not that important. But what was important was, did you express gratitude to the people who helped you? Did you care about people? Did you show yourself to be the person you are? Yes. And were you honest? Or did you work with integrity? Those are the things that constitute self-worth. What is the legacy that you leave behind? Whatever stuff you've accumulated, you can't take with you, right? Correct. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. How can people learn more about you and history-making productions? Well, there are a couple of ways to learn about some of our films. First of all, the Philadelphia films that have been completed are on the website, historymakingproductions.com. Beethoven in Beijing is on its own website, beethoveninbeijing.com. And there will be more populating the website of bankruptcyofdetroit.com. Yes. And each of the different genres of films has their own digital platform. And we've been in the process of trying to upgrade those as well. But the the films themselves, Beethoven in Beijing is available on the streaming platform of PBS and will soon be available on other ways. Detroit won't be released until 2022. The Great Experiment and all the Philadelphia films are on YouTube. 
but all of them are accessible through those sites. Beethoven in Beijing, Bankruptcy of Detroit, HistoryMakingProductions.com. All of them. All of them. Go watch all of them when you're looking for something to do on a Friday night, on a Saturday date night, or on a Tuesday just because night. Fantastic range of topics, range of, of and all entertainment one way or another, whether it's about sports, religion, politics, history, so many different incredible movies. Thank you so much for all of your contributions to the city and beyond, Sam, and Thank for you, joining Laura. us today. To everybody else out there, Thank you for tuning in. As always, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on iTunes so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Socola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sicola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.